gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. I went to Great Lakes to get this guest today, and it was it was a reach. It took some effort. Um, I had to bring the green M and M's. Um, it was it was it was tough, but I thought it was worth doing because she is the uh, uh, the the livelier half of a really fantastic podcast called Advisory Opinions. Um, And I realized that uh, while their numbers are great and the Remnant's numbers are great, they may not be the same numbers and the same people. And uh, we had her on one time before, er, very earlier in her tenure at the Dispatch. And I feel like she was a little too guarded, a little too reserved, a little too (laughs) worried about what have I gotten myself into. And now she's let down her hair figuratively, but not literally, because um, I can see her. Um, we have the lovely and talented Sarah Isger. Welcome back to The Remnant. And a happy Safe Harbor Day to you, Jonah. Yes, I know. This is very exciting. This is So one of the reasons why we wanted to have you on is, this, even though it feels like I've talked about election fraud constantly, because we do the Dispatch podcast together, and I listen to advisory opinions, and this is the life we've chosen. Um, I actually haven't talked directly about like the nitty gritty of this stuff. And I thought since you do such a wonderful job on AO that we would have you on here to walk us through a little bit and then we'll get into the rank punditry. But I do want to say I am going to uh, turn down the gain on your nerd battery <gasps> slightly. What? Uh, you, you were allowed to say the the term USC Three times, and that's it. Okay, um, you can't. Okay. We don't. We do, we do not need to get too deep in the weeds of the eighteen seventy six presidential presidential crisis. Uh, we can get into it. We can get into it. But but for people who we don't want to just rip off what you did on advisory opinions, which is still relevant. And our, wait a second. Wait a second. I'm calling. No, I'm calling BS because I listened to the awesome podcast about the fabric of textiles uh-huh. and it was amazing but if you're going to tell me that somehow this podcast is nerd free suddenly or has a no, nerd no, no, governor no, no. on it give me a break jonah no, goldberg no 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 no, no, no. I, 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 all i'm saying is that legal nerd non-legal nerdery you can turn to 11 legal nerdery <laughs> you have to just okay. turn down to like a 6 so that people understand what you're talking about because you have you have, in a Pavlovian way, acclimatized your advisory opinions audience <laughs> to that con- that level, that next level legal nerdery that Jonah, we don't typically do here. So I'm just really going to stop you from news. time to time to say, explain that, okay? That's all I'm saying. I, I have really bad news for you on this front, is that you thought I was going to come with all of the nerdery on Safe Harbor Day, but in fact, this morning... Texas has filed a suit of original jurisdiction in the Supreme Court, and I am on a whole other type of nerdery this morning. So, ha. Okay, well, let's start with that. You know, I saw that this morning, and I was like, I didn't think this was really a thing. So, um, <laughs> let's uh, crack open a beer, and uh, <laughs> wh- can you explain to people WTF, and, and, and then we'll get into it. Sure. So, as you all know, in the U.S. Constitution... Article one is the legislature. Article two is the executive and article three, that be the Supreme court. 
and uh, the judiciary as set up by Congress and uh, authorized by Congress. And so a lot of people just assume that like everything goes to court because it goes to court and you don't really think through the distinction between, for instance, what goes to state court and what goes to federal court, but enter all these election challenges. And they've been really fun because some are filed in state court and then the exact same thing gets filed in federal court, which is not actually the way it's supposed to work, which is why you've seen uh, a lot of these cases have been dismissed for want of federal jurisdiction. Right. That basically the federal judge is like, nah, wrong court, dude. Go to state court or don't, but like, this ain't my problem. Because because, because state elections are state stuff, right? That's the basic And they thing. interpret their own laws and there's all sorts of things that are just state-based. Um, you have to have a jurisdictional hook to get into federal court. Now, at a lower federal court, it's not the highest bar in the world. You know, you live, Jonah, in Maryland, and I live in Virginia, even though I live in the District of Columbia. Okay, whatever. That's not a real place. (laughs) But the point is, I don't live where you live. And so if I sue you, we have federal jurisdiction because um, the idea would be that the state courts of Virginia would favor me because I am such a hometown girl. And a federal court would be really, you know, equipose between us. And therefore that would be federal jurisdiction. Okay. Yada, yada, yada. That one, like most people know, but article three actually lays out original jurisdiction for the Supreme court that includes lawsuits between two States. And it's sort of the same idea as me suing you, uh, and why that would be in federal court. If, uh, Georgia sues Florida over its line, the Florida-Georgia line, if you will. Nice, nice. Thank you, thank you. This actually was a lawsuit at the Supreme Court just two years ago. Yeah, I think it was two terms ago. Uh, And it was the Florida-Georgia line case, which was awesome. Um, the, The idea would be that even a federal court in Florida would be biased against Georgia. And therefore... Home court advantage. If you will... (laughs) and therefore the supreme court has original jurisdiction you don't have to go to the lower courts you can skip go collect your 200 dollars, and head straight to the supreme court so what happened this morning is that texas decided to sue pennsylvania wisconsin michigan and georgia about their election and go straight to the supreme court clever girl right but here's the problem The Supreme Court, while Article 3 actually just says suits between states shall blah, 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 the Supreme Court has interpreted that to mean like only if we actually really want to and only if it's actually important. And so it's still discretionary in that sense. That makes sense, Uh, though, right? I mean, otherwise. You can't hear all of this. Yeah. So they've said that uh, their original jurisdiction is, quote, limited and manifestly to be sparingly exercised and should not be expanded by construction. Okay. So last term, Justice Thomas, always our textualist, always our originalist, had a dissent from denial of one of these original jurisdiction cases where you actually have to ask permission for the court to to go straight to the court, and they denied it. And in Justice Thomas's dissent, this was Arizona suing California, I believe, Uh, Justice Thomas basically said, like, Article 3 actually doesn't make this sound discretionary at all. Like, maybe we should be taking all of these. Nobody joined him. And that's sort of where the ball lies on the field. And then enter Ken Paxton, who, if you've been paying attention to weird Texas political gossipy stuff, is having... As we all do. 
as we all do, is in a world of trouble in Texas. His eight top deputies all resigned, accusing him of bribery and abusive office. Um, and he's the, so, he's, but for people who don't know who he is, he <laughs> Oh, is. how do you not? He's the <laughs> Texas attorney general. Okay. So he just filed this lawsuit, uh, basically claiming that these other states violated Texas's rights to a real election is sort of the simple way to put that. But there's no new allegations in it. It's all the same stuff that have been brought in these other lawsuits. It's just that this is a different standing idea that Texas somehow has been injured by them screwing up their elections and the original jurisdiction hook, because then you get to go faster. But Jonah... This brings us to Safe Harbor Day. <laughs> so why don't we explain carefully, clearly, and without a, a, in a, in a an excess of effulgent passion and nerdery um, what? what Safe Harbor Day is. You take the joy out of everything, Jonah. I'm, everything. I'm a thief of joy. I'm a thief of joy. I'm the joy thief. Worst. Okay. Okay. No, I'm not saying you can't enjoy it. Just you have to like you have to bring listeners along a little bit. So, what is Safe Harbor Day? It sounds a lot like Arbor Day, which <laughs> conjures does. to me to, like when I was went to Road of Sholem Day School, we sang a song and chorus called "Tubishvat is here, the Jewish Arbor Day." But that's not really relevant to what we're talking about right now. So, what is Harbor Day with where you pronounce the H, not the silent H, which is Arbor Day, which has to do with trees and whatnot? This could have to do with trees, but it doesn't. So I will try to do this without all of the joy in my heart coming through my voice because you are a curmudgeonly terrible person. I, I don't mind. To be honest, joy. I, I want to clarify. I don't mind the joy. What, 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 what my problem is, is that when you give in to your passions on this, <laughs> it is like all of a sudden it's like a superconducting super collider that throws off particles. All of a sudden like legal <laughs> footnotes and weird terms that no one knows fly off in different directions. I'm going to have to say, what does that mean? But the passion is fine. It's just, you know, channel your powers for good. Let me take you back, Jonah, to 1876. The country is in disarray. Uh, you have Andrew Johnson, the other one-term impeached president who doesn't win re-election. The only other one, by the way, who fits all of those categories. Um, and then you have Ulysses S. Grant, because Johnson, of course, doesn't even get the Republican nomination the next time. Ulysses S. Grant then comes in. He's not the most popular president in the world. Lots of rumors flying around about him. Fast forward, we're now in 1876, and the election is between the governor of Ohio and the governor of New York. The governor of Ohio is the Republican uh, Rutherford B. Hayes, and the governor of New York is Samuel Tilden, the Democrat. Now, it is a very tight election. But there's also a lot of intimidation. There's maybe some violence. There's a lot of fraud. The result is that four states mm, send in two slates of electors. Oregon, Louisiana, South Carolina, and Florida. It's always Florida. It really is. Forever it's been Florida. And by the way, William Rehnquist, the former chief justice, wrote an amazing book about this election called Centennial Crisis about the, you know, Florida-ness of the whole thing with uh, a nice deep sense of irony in his own Florida-ness that had just come to pass. Highly recommend. Okay. So what the 12th Amendment says is that uh, the state legislatures, uh, you know, are in charge of this. 
They determine when the electors hang out and then the electors meet and then they send their slates, their elector slates to the president of the Senate. But what happens when two elector slates get sent? Which one does Congress count? There was no answer to this in 1876. And in fact, so much so that Congress then appointed a commission, a bipartisan commission. And it was going to have five Republicans and five Democrats and one independent. That independent uh, was David Davis, who was a Supreme Court justice. The Democrats thought they'd be really clever. And they gave David Davis a Senate seat, a Democratic Senate seat, thinking now he'll vote for us and then he'll take the Senate seat. Uh, And David Davis was, uh, you know, sympathetic to, to the Democrats. But he decides in a fit of 1876-ness um, that he's just going to take the Senate seat and not vote at all. So he just leaves the commission. <laughs> so anyway, this whole thing turns into a mess. Uh, in the end, there's the Compromise of 1877, which is reached by which Rutherford B. Hayes, our, you know, obviously everyone knows that he's the one who won because he's such a famous president. He ascends to the presidency as a Republican. In exchange, Republicans agree to more or less end Reconstruction. This is perhaps one of the original sins of the 19th century that haunts us to this day. And it's all because we didn't have a plan for what to do about a really close election. Okay, Congress spends 10 years working on this, Jonah. In 1877, sorry, 1887, they passed... That would be the 10 years kicking That's that's right. I can count Mm -hmm. some days. They passed the Electoral uh, Count Act. And this thing is a hot mess, is the legal term. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it's, it's intended to fix this problem. So what does it do? First, it sets the date by which you have to send in your stuff. And the date is the uh, first Monday after the second Wednesday in December, which this year falls on the 14th. And by stuff, you mean the election certification, your slate of electors. Your slate of electors. So you've got to send it in by that date. Fine. By the way, Jonah, that's 3 USC Section 7. That's one. (laughs) (laughs) Two more. But that doesn't solve any problems because that doesn't solve the problem of what happens if you've got two of them, two slates sent in. So (laughs) they create what's called Safe Harbor Day. Safe Harbor Day happens six days before the deadline, whenever that is. And that this year happens to be today. So what is Safe Harbor Day? What they tried to do was basically set a date by which if you send in your slate before this date, that's the slate that will count. So whoever sends in their slate before Safe Harbor Day, on Safe Harbor Day, on or before, you're the slate that counts. Problem solved. Safe Harbor Day. Except that obviously doesn't solve anything. It's the most circular solution ever because as I'm sure you already have figured out, Jonah, what happens if they just had both sent in their slates before Safe Harbor Day? Right. So that leads us to 3 USC Section 15. Two. (laughs) (laughs) So this is what explains or is supposed to explain all of these machinations. So, okay. There's three scenarios, right? There's one where if the two slates are sent in, one is sent in before Safe Harbor Day and one is sent in after Safe Harbor Day. 
no problem. Congress counts the ones sent in before Safe Harbor Day and does not count the ones sent in after Safe Harbor Day. And also, those people who sent it in after Safe Harbor Day are dummies because there's a Safe Harbor Day and they would know this. And so nobody's going to send it in after Safe Harbor Day. Okay, so fine. Safe Harbor Day fixes that solution that's never going to happen. Number two, both slates are sent in before Safe Harbor Day. What it says about that is that uh, then the Senate and the House need to agree on which one should count. They just should agree. They just should come to that agreement. That's mm-hmm. not going to happen. Nice. It says, yeah. yeah, it says if they can't come to that agreement, then none of them will count. We're going to come back to that. Okay, then the third bucket is both of them are sent in after Safe Harbor Day. I don't know why that would happen, but okay, maybe it mm-hmm. does. Wagon wheels break down back then. That's right. So both of them are sent in after Safe Harbor Day. Again, the House and the Senate need to agree on which one should count. If they can't agree, it doesn't say anything. Instead, the sentence ends. Then there's another sentence, and it says that the slate certified by the governor shall be the one that counts as the tiebreaker. So the governor certifying is the tiebreaker. The chief executive of the state is what it says. But we don't know. So let me go back because... 3 USC 15. That's my third one. Mm-hmm. You said I had three. Uh, yeah. Three you US, do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's 809 words. Mm-hmm. It has 57 commas. Nice. It has 16 uses of such, which like is a nonsense word that only makes sentences more difficult to read. And that sentence at the end about the governor tiebreaker is just hanging out there. So we don't know whether that is meant to modify only the buckets right before it, which is the both slates are sent in after the safe Harbor day. So if the two houses can't agree and they're both sent in after, then the governor is the tiebreaker. That's one interpretation. But another interpretation is that it says if both houses can't agree, the governor, the chief executive of the state shall be the tiebreaker. Well, there's two scenarios where if both houses can't agree, there's a thing. And that's the other one, which is where they're both sent in before Safe Harbor Day. So is the governor also a tiebreaker if they're both sent in? And in that case, what does it mean then to say that none shall count? Because then there'd never be a situation unless, I guess, both are sent in before Safe Harbor Day. The House and Senate can't agree on who to count. Neither of them is certified by the governor. And then none shall count. It gets really messy. But... Um, we have another problem because even if you think the nun shall count is what then is the tiebreaker on that one and not the governor. And this would be a really big problem. Let's say, you know, it's 16 electoral votes. Do you subtract the 16 electoral votes from 270? Or do you subtract the 16 electoral votes from 270 and 538, which would change the number that the winner needed to have in the first place? Yeah, my understanding is that's what you do, is that if you're taking the electoral votes out, from what I remember from after the people vote, uh, <laughs> which was a great little pamphlet put up by the American Enterprise Institute, that if you, take it, if, you, if you deny a state's electors entirely, then the total amount of electors needed in the country is decreased. And so that was one of the, my understanding, one of the dumb things about some of the Trump stuff was even if you invalidated Pennsylvania's electors, that doesn't solve it because you've you've just lowered the total number of electoral votes that you don't need 270 anymore. You need whatever half of um, 
538 minus Pennsylvania's electors. <laughs> Sorry. We, we, what are the deals on this? It's in, actually in my contract that there be no math. Um, all right, but, all right, so let's, let's cut to the chase. Why is in the current context of, of this sprinkler system of fecal matter that we all live in, in this contested election thing, what is the significance of Safe Harbor Day being today, what happens after Safe Harbor Day, and um, uh, and then I want to ask you some actual nitty gritty election fraud kind of questions because you actually ran what was it Romney's um, election day election operations. day thingy yeah so um, election day thingy also works. Why are we subjecting our my precious wonderful listeners to this minutia? Which hey look, I, I love minutia. But why is it actually important? Let's tie it back to today. Okay, I'm going to tell you why it is important, and then I'm going to tell you a theory by which it's not important. So, why it is important. (laughs) Okay. Why it is important is that if every state turns in a slate of electors today and turns in only one slate of electors, that's the ballgame. That even if the, uh, the Donald Trump calls the Georgia legislature, convinces Governor Kemp to call a special session, and then the Georgia legislature comes in and decides to uh, send in a different slate of electors, this statute says that they're out of time, that the slate that was sent in before Safe Harbor Day counts, and the slate that is sent in after does not count. So the Trump campaign is out of time. But it's just a statute, right? So the Supreme Court will be asked about it, and you think the Supreme Court would say, sort of like the court that in Miracle on 34th Street said, look, they, they sent the mail to San- this guy thinking it was Santa. We're not going to second guess the post office. I mean, is it going to be that kind of thing where the Supreme Court is just like, I don't want any part of this. And so hand it off. Well, you'd have to show something unconstitutional about this statute or that something in the Constitution overrides this statute because the Constitution is the supreme law of the land but only if it speaks to this, because otherwise the Constitution also says that Congress can pass laws about elections. So this is a duly passed law. Uh, There's nothing unconstitutional about it on its face. So you'd have to find that the slate that was sent in was somehow violated the law itself, was unconstitutional or something to overcome Safe Harbor Day. That's a big hurdle to overcome based on everything that we've seen so far in these lawsuits. Because... We want finality in our elections. That's why the 1887 law exists in the first place. That's why there's all this statutory language that may be poorly written and confusing in 57 commas. But the whole point is that elections, in some sense, aren't like philosophically, they're not actually meant to count every vote, Jonah. That's not the point of an election. The point of an election is to determine a winner, Mm -hmm. which is a weird distinction to make. But when you have, you know, 160 million people voting, 160 million ballots, we actually have decided as a country, statutorily, and even maybe in the Constitution, that the goal isn't to know that it's, you know, 80 million and one votes versus 79 million and, you know, 900,999999, whatever votes. And because of that, we actually, the goal of an election is to determine a winner. That's what this statute does. And the Constitution very much contemplates Congress doing stuff like this. So that's what Safe Harbor Day is about. Now, as we said, 
if for some reason a state does turn in two slates today, then we're in a slightly different world, which gets messy and stupid. But there is no indication that any state legislature is sending in a second certification of state electors today. It looks like we're going to have the 50 slates that Safe Harbor Day will come and go as it does every four years without anyone really caring except your listeners because I have forced and, them to and now they're and the super year 2000, into it. Which was a little complicated, but yeah. Yeah, so in Bush v. Gore, actually, that's the like why Florida said they wanted expedited review is because they wanted to meet the safe harbor deadline. And basically all parts of the Florida government were agreeing that they would all abide by whatever the Supreme Court said. So the Supreme Court heard argument on December 11th that year. They issued their opinion on December 12th. And I bet you can guess what December 12th was in 2000. Two bush five. Oh, uh, safe harbor day. <laughs> it was safe harbor day. Wow. Okay. So, um, but what about this thing where Justice Alito, who's not sitting as a Supreme Court guy, he's sitting as the guy around rides around his circuit thingamabob, uh, which each member of the Supreme Court does. They have their own little jurisdiction, sort of like, you know, uh, you know, lone lone wolf McQuaid. Um, so uh, he decided to move up a hearing on one of these Pennsylvania cases a day earlier because he originally set the case for the day after Safe Harbor Day, which was viewed as a get away, get away from me, kid, you're bothering me kind of move, but he didn't take any of this stuff seriously. And now he he's moved it up to this the, this morning. Right. So could that affect the electors coming out of Pennsylvania or is that just all sound and fury? So goodbye. Not up. Can it? Absolutely. Will it? Absolutely not. So <laughs> it can. Uh, so yeah, Alito initially sets the briefing deadline for tomorrow post Safe Harbor Day, meaning that the Supreme Court would have to, as I said, like basically find something wrong with the statute in order to uh, unscramble that egg post Safe Harbor Day. And there was a lot of complaining about that, that it wasn't really fair to the litigants who brought their case in a somewhat timely manner. They brought it before Safe Harbor Day, at least. And then in 2000, that's how this worked. They just made sure that they um, decided the case before Safe Harbor Day so that there was sort of turnabout fair play, if you will. So Alito moves up the briefing deadline to today at 9 a.m. So this gives the Supreme Court, you know, approximately 14 to 16 hours to read the briefs and make a decision. So there's a few decisions they can make. To your point, Jonah, about whether um, they can affect it. So sure, they can. They could issue a uh, temporary restraining order preventing Pennsylvania from certifying its slate of electors, which they've already done, but they can sort of undo that in theory pre-Safe Harbor Day and therefore make Pennsylvania miss Safe Harbor Day so that any slate or two slates would be sent in post-Safe Harbor Day and then you fall into that third bucket. They could do that. Maybe, kind of. Uh, they could say that they've made a decision just on the merits and that Pennsylvania must send in the Trump slate of electors on Safe Harbor Day. That would be today. They could That sounds that. unlikely to me. That sounds very unlikely. Uh, but here's what's actually going to happen. There's going to be some sort of thing from the Supreme Court later today or tonight on the merits or the jurisdiction of this case. And I don't know, Jonah, if 
you and your listeners want to get into what that case is actually about in Pennsylvania. But the short and important version is that it's a creative federal jurisdictional hook to begin with, relying on a concurring opinion from Bush v. Gore to even get federal jurisdiction. But for the most part, uh, the Supreme Court relies on state courts to interpret their own law. And in this case, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court has, in some sense, decided whether Act 77, which we don't need to get into necessarily, was constitutionally passed per the Pennsylvania Constitution. So the U.S. Supreme Court does not interpret the Pennsylvania Constitution. The U.S. Supreme Court relies on the Pennsylvania Supreme Court to interpret the Pennsylvania Constitution. So I would expect that we're going to see an opinion tonight that puts this all nicely to bed, tucked in with its little hot cup of milk, and it's, you know, dreaming its happy little case dreams as it drifts off. Okay, and so the, the issue in Pennsylvania um, is just basically there's a there's a legit constitutional question about whether you can change um, whether whether judges can change election law rather than the legislature because it's supposed to be done by the legislature. Is that the issue here? Close. This case, by the way, this is not brought by Trump. This was brought by some congressmen. In Pennsylvania, right. they're arguing that Act 77, which allowed for much broader mail-in balloting that was passed in October 19, right, right, right. Uh, October 2019, right. in order to function in Pennsylvania, needed to be a constitutional amendment to the Pennsylvania Constitution, and that Act 77 was not did not follow the process needed to become a Pennsylvania constitutional amendment, and therefore it's invalid and it shouldn't have been in place for the 2020 election. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court, when they heard this case, said that basically this challenge was simply brought too late under uh, the theory of latches, which is if you have an unreasonable delay, a bad faith delay in bringing your case, because remember, they could have brought it in October 2019. They could have brought it in October 2020. But they chose not only to wait until after the election, but they chose to wait until all of Pennsylvania's votes have been counted. It was very clear who had won. And then they said, JK, that whole election shouldn't count. So, for instance, if they had said, look, we don't think this was constitutionally passed under the Pennsylvania state constitution, and therefore for 2022, we don't think that mail-in balloting should be as broad, that wouldn't have a latches problem. The problem right. is that the remedy that they're seeking is to void the 2020 election and that they waited until, you know, six days later uh, to say like, oh, our guy lost. Let's say that the whole election should be void. That's generally frowned upon. So that's like the legal equivalent of returning a coat for spite, right? You're, just, you're not supposed to do that. Okay, so um, uh, I I did not mean to, 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 certainly I'm not trying to mansplain, but I did not mean to diminish or throw a wet blanket on your, your energy level. And I thank you very much for defying me. Um, sometimes I feel like, uh, you are working on a on a solid nicotine buzz, which is one of the things that you can get from Lucy. Lucy Nicotine is a company founded by Caltech scientists and former smokers looking for a better and cleaner nicotine alternative. Finally, tobacco alternatives that don't suck. Research and developed for three years to make for to be made for people, not patients. Lucy has created a nicotine gum 
with four milligrams of nicotine that come in three flavors, wintergreen, cinnamon, and pomegranate. Lucy also has a lozenge with four milligrams of nicotine in cherry ice flavor. I got to try that one next. Each and every flavor actually tastes great. So far, that's actually true. I actually tried the pomegranate the other day, and I'm not a pomegranate fan, but I liked it nonetheless. And it's convenient and discreet. Products can be enjoyed anywhere, on flights, at work, on the go, even in the gym. Now, I've been telling people for a while now to try, give a try to Lucy. I mean, it's not for everybody. If you don't have a need for nicotine, uh, you know, maybe this is not the time to start. But if you're trying to quit smoking or cut back on you know, the glorious habit of smoking cigars, uh, I highly recommend this product for you. It's, 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 it's extremely useful. It's 2020. Get rid of your cigarettes, unplug your vape, throw out your dip, and get some Lucy nicotine gum or lozenges. This is the real deal. A subscription to Lucy comes directly to your door each month. It's so simple, and you don't have to leave your house because Lucy has delivery down. Remnant listeners, go to lucy.co, that's C-O. Go to lucy.co and use promo code DINGO to get 20% off all products, including gum or lozenges. That's 20% off at lucy.co, promo code DINGO. Also, I have to give this disclaimer. Warning, this product contains nicotine derived from tobacco. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. That's true. Lucy.co, and be sure to use that promo code DINGO. We thank Lucy for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. All right, so... Uh, uh, it just- will come as a, as a maybe concern to your listeners that I don't even drink caffeine. Is that right? You're just high on life? Just high on the joy that is Article 3. Yeah, and, and the blood of your victims. But that's a different story, which we don't need to get into. So um, uh, rapid fire, because I want to move on to some other stuff. But uh, yeah. I, I feel like I need to do my due diligence on some of this stuff. Um, uh, the, the stuff that Trump keeps hammering on about signature matching. Yeah. Right? My understanding is that the signatures were matched once when the request comes in and then again when the ba- actual ballot comes in that had been requested. And once those things match, by you know, it, there's this, this, this uh, committee of, of, of elders who determine this signature stuff and they are wise and sagacious. They use the entrails sagacious. of doves. That's right. So the, the harpuses, harpuses, um, figure this out and they do it. And then calling for a signature match now after the ballots have been thrown in because we all have anonymous ballots makes no sense because you don't know which ballot, even if you want to question the signatures, you wouldn't know which ballots to pull back, right? So you'd have to pull back them all. So can you explain why the signature matching thing is, is weird or that Trump is not really talking in good faith about that stuff? Yeah, so he's changed his argument on this a little to make it actually fit the facts a little bit better. So yes to everything you said on the process for signature matching. And once the envelope has been separated from the ballot, ne'er the twain shall meet because of course we have secret ballots. So you never want to keep someone's signature, which has their name next to their ballot, which shows you how they voted. We don't do that. But here's his arguments now. A, that the percentage of signatures that were found to match 
is significantly higher than it should have been and that it's been in past elections and that that is evidence that they weren't doing signature matching in good faith or they would have found that lots of signatures didn't match um, as they have in previous years. And B, that because you can't match them back up again, we have to throw out the entire all absentee ballots. Okay, let's take those one at a time. I'm going to start with the second one, actually. So first of all, while you can't match up the envelopes with the ballot anymore, you could look at the envelopes and say that that signature of Bob Jones does not match the signature on file for Bob Jones, and therefore that ballot should not have been counted. And while we can't figure out who Bob Jones voted for and what his ballot is, if you found, let's call it 14,000 of those ballots where the signature didn't match and should not have been considered to match, the remedy for that would be to redo the election, which for instance, uh, we've done actually pretty recently. There was a congressional election where the campaign manager for the Republican was arrested and charged with uh, illegal harvesting of ballots in that state, which sort of is the same idea behind this. And they found that the number of ballots that he had illegally harvested looked big enough that it could have affected the outcome of the election. And the remedy is to redo that election, which they did a year later in 2019. Uh, So yeah, you could do that, but they haven't actually done that and gone through those signatures. Okay, so then we get to the actual signature matching and why the number is higher or lower or whatever else. So signature matching really is not only not science, it's not even art. The studies that are out there on signature matching basically shows that a, you know, handwriting expert has a slightly better chance of matching a signature, but not that great. And certainly the lay people who we have as election officials aren't that much better than guessing, really. Um, And so a lot of states are throwing out signature matching entirely as a way to do that, and that there's going to be other ways to match someone's absentee ballot to their real identity, like, for instance, their license number or something that would be relatively hard to steal from someone. So the the signature numbers are just too high is a pretty losing argument because frankly, it's up to the state whether to have signature matching. So that is in the law. They have to do signature matching then in Georgia, for instance. But then the way that they did it changed where instead of it's just like the election official looks at it, decides it counts or doesn't count. This time what they did is the election official looks at it. If that election official says that it doesn't count, Then it goes to this other group of like three people who look at it and decide whether it should count. So basically, I don't know, do you know how cranberries work? How we determine whether there's a good cranberry or a bad cranberry, like ocean spray, Jonah? Is it sort of like the good egg, bag egg egg in in Willy Wonka? No, it is not. So there's a little machine, machine um, in the sort of old, uh, the fabric of textile sense from your podcast. And it's a wooden barrel, if you will. And the wooden barrel has slats and it has five slats that face um, perpendicular to the ground, but slanted downward. If that sort of like sense. a pachinko machine. Uh-huh. Yes. So they dump the cranberries down this tube, this barrel tube, and good cranberries bounce. And so the cranberries have five opportunities to bounce out of the tube. If they don't, if they miss all five of those and just hit it, and thud and hit it and thud, then they go to the bad cranberry place where all bad cranberries go. Similar with the signatures before, we just had this one thing, and if you were a, a bad cranberry, 
you went down, but maybe you were a good cranberry who just didn't hit the plank right, you know? Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. so you didn't, you know, you only got that one opportunity to bounce out. So Georgia basically said you get a second, third opportunity to bounce out of the bad cranberry pile. And that's why the signature matching numbers went uh, up this year. Yeah, so this this kind of um, raises one of my larger sort of meta um, um, complaints about the entire election fraud thing. If you read certain very online types, if you listen to um, um, match lap between visits to deposit checks into his banking account um, and various others, uh, they talk about the election and these absentee ballot stuff as if there hadn't been a pandemic, right? And then then when you get closer to crazy town, you actually get people saying the whole pandemic was a ruse or a pretext so that they could do the absentee ballot stuff and hence steal the election. Um, the, the first argument, I think, is just bad faith. The second argument is back guano crazy, right? So, there, I mean, there, there are different things. I mean, if you actually think that the pandemic is a whole fraud thing, um, um, sort of like, well, we'll get to that in a second, uh, just so that you could plan in advance stealing the election for Joe Biden, then you're the order you're probably, to up, there's up nothing I'm going to say on this podcast that will help That's you. Right. Earth logic is not going to help you in debating. But if you think, but if you're saying that, oh, they just, they they didn't really do this absentee voting thing because of the pandemic. They did it because this is the way they're going to cheat. I still think it's nuts, but it's like within orbit of earth logic. Um, But it's amazing how frequently now you just simply hear, and Park as Trump retweets it, people saying um, the absentee ballot thing had really was the point of it has nothing to do with the pandemic and had entirely to do with trying to steal the election. Cause, and, and I'm trying to figure out the best way to explain, cause I have people in my life who I care about who say these things. How do you respond to that? <laughs> so I have this newsletter, Jonah called the sweep and yes, I'm aware of it. It's quite good. Pre pre-election. I uh, jotted out, sort of my three buckets of how to steal an election. And uh, look, you do, there's a question over whether mail-in ballots are a good idea, especially as we've expanded early voting so much. You know, and by the way, on, on early voting, there's a question over how long we should have early voting, but. I'm against it for the most part in non-pandemic times. But. So. And you want your voting machines to create a paper receipt like they do in Georgia now. But for a while, Georgia didn't have paper receipts and they don't in Texas where you just vote and the machine tells you like, did you want to vote for this person? And you say yes. And that's the end. And then you walk out. That's maybe not great. Quick question on the paper receipt thing, because that's another thing you hear all over the place is we need to move back to paper, which I believed in in response to the Diebold nonsense 20 years ago. But my understanding is that Dominion machines create a paper trail, right? Yes, they do. Yes, they is do. It, do you get to see the piece of paper after you vote? Like, does a person going into the voting booth cast their vote electronically and then it prints out a piece of paper that you get to see that matches up with what, how you voted or not? Um, that's a good question. It, I, it depends. 
basically. There are some versions where what you're doing is actually filling out your ballot and feeding it into the machine. And so then it's like a Scantron. And so it just falls to the bottom of the machine. So it's um, not even a really a receipt. It's the electronic right. thing. The electronic thing is kind of a receipt. It's a it's recordation. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, okay. So, so you have that for voting in person and how long we should have early voting ahead of time. We can have a debate over that, but it's not fraud related. It's more just like uh, prudential about how long we think people should have to pay attention to elections before they get to have made up their mind. Um, on mail-in voting, there's no question that it is more open to fraud. But that fraud, the amount of fraud that one could do with mail-in voting is at a level that it could definitely swing a county sheriff race. Mm-hmm. Um, it could even swing a very tight congressional race, probably. I have yet to see anything, any plan, any theory, and certainly anything executed where you could steal enough votes to change a statewide election, which in this case would be a presidential, a governor, a attorney mm-hmm. general, whatever. So how could you fake some ballots? Um, one is to add ballots. So you just like bring in buckets full of ballots and you just throw them into the machines. The problem is that you would need to have a plan to distribute those across a lot of places because about 90% of registered voters vote. Right. So you would need to figure out the 10% of registered voters who didn't vote, aren't going to vote on election day, and then sort of distribute that number because you, it can't be 100% of registered voters. So you're going to look for like maybe 93% of registered voters in 10 different counties. Uh, so that's just going to take a lot of work, a lot of research. And of course, then you're going to have to uh, fake the ballots. Or mm-hmm. you're going to have to request absentee ballots for those people, intercept them all. It's just, that's very difficult. You could do it a few hundred times. You could not do it 20,000 times. Right. That's the, the problem with like the guys that Hannity had on TV t- talking about how they drove these trucks full of ballots um, or the Roger Stone thing about the North Koreans sneaking them in through Maine, because that's totally where North Korean boats would come to the United States is uh, across the Atlantic. Um, Cause we don't just and, have like a statewide vote. These votes are counted in precincts. Right. Uh, and then those precincts. You can't dump numbers, them all at one precinct. Cause then people would be like, why are there more votes than all the people in this precinct? Right. It would just, correct. you have to sort of like in Shawshank Redemption or in uh, the great escape, when you're digging a tunnel and you have to do something with the dirt that you've excavated, you have to like, drop it through the hole in your pocket and spread it out over the whole prison yard. That is the best the guards, analogy. Yes. If the guards see a giant pile of dirt in one place, they're going to say that must come from a tunnel. Yes. So then the other way is to change ballots. Uh-huh. Uh, so you go pick up a bunch of absentee ballots from the olds, and then uh, those are sealed in a secrecy envelope, and you open the secrecy envelope and put in a new ballot with the correct vote. Uh, the, a guy in New Jersey claims to have done this, and he said that he could, using um, steam off of a pot, I believe he said he could do one every five minutes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, first of all, even if he did that for a week, and even if he did it with his like three or four friends, I think I worked it out to be like a couple thousand ballots. That's not going to be enough. And of course, everyone you add to this conspiracy is another person who can testify against you. Uh, And 
a reporter tried to mimic his way of doing this through several different fashions, using steam, using a microwave over a bowl of water, all sorts of different things. They tried for 20 minutes to steam it open and ripped the envelope. So you'd have to be a real pro at that and something that nobody has been able to replicate. Um, So really hard to change votes. Now, something that you absolutely can do, but again, it'd be hard to do at a statewide level to change enough votes, is you could, in a state that allows ballot harvesting, that's where you can pick up someone else's vote for them and turn it in for them. Um, Not a lot of states allow that, actually, and for potentially this reason. You could go to a nursing home where you happen to know it's in hardcore uh, Trump territory. You know, it's in some really rural part and all of these people are hanging Trump flags out their little nursing home windows. You could go through and say, hi, I'm here on behalf of the Trump campaign and I'm going to help turn in your ballot if you just want to fill it out and give it to me. I will go turn it into the election bureau. So now you've collected, let's call it 40 ballots for Donald Trump. You could throw those in the trash. There. They're not for Biden now, but at least you've cut Trump's number by 40. The problem is not a whole lot of people are going to give you their ballot. Some will. Mm -hmm. You're not going to know for sure that they all voted for Trump. So you're going to be throwing away some Biden ballots too, even if it's skewed toward Trump. And again, uh, you couldn't possibly do it 20,000 times or in the case of Michigan, you know, 148,000 times. Right. And there's also this thing, and you can correct me if I'm wrong about this. You'd be breaking the law. And, that. <laughs> and like, you have to figure out who is it that is going to pay a lot of people willing to do that, who, as you sort of suggested, are also willing to get a payday by turning you in um, and talking to the press about what you tried to do, uh, not the most reliable personnel, and you have to do it at scale, right? It just, it doesn't seem to work. But of course, we're not taking into account the 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 technological wizardry of Hugo Chavez and the Venezuelan regime, which has figured all of this stuff out. That's right. right so, a, so, yeah. Okay, so I have a uh, different question. I hear you on the uh, the advisory opinions podcast and various other legal type people using the phrase "that's a colorable argument" a lot, <laughs> and. Yeah. I got to say, I, I like words. I like to smush them around. Um, I say I haven't heard that word used that way ever until about three years ago. And now I hear it all over the place. Has that always been like a term of art for you legal people? Yeah, always. So colorable basically means non-sanctionable. So there's this thing called rule 11, where if you uh, have a sanctionable complaint, your opposing counsel can motion for sanctions under Rule 11, and the judge can say that is, um, you know, without so without merit, in bad faith, meant to harass your opponent, that I'm going to sanction the attorney or the client. And so we use colorable to just mean like, look, he's not going to get sanctioned for it. It's, you know, it's kind of cray, but you never know. Okay, so that's interesting because I first started hearing it, I think, in earnest partly from Luke Thompson, but uh, about Trump's calls to Ukraine. And the argument was, well, that's a colorable, there's a colorable argument that that's within the gamut of what 
a president of the United States should be doing, even if the the other side's alleges. So maybe that's how it kind of escaped the lab um, to mean <laughs> just sort of plausible. It doesn't have to be true, but it's not outrageous to make the claims, right? So that, that annoys. All right, so I just want to get that out there because it bothers me every time I hear the word colorable. Um, uh, second question. So I have a new theory, and actually I saw you on um, uh, this week, my ABC, I, I, I have a feeling that um, uh, my old friend Meiju, the booking producer for this week, is loves you more now than she loves me, and that's fine. Um, <laughs> Even though you have better hair, which is so strange. It is weird, but you know, uh, you're still easier on the eyes than I am. So uh, small children run to their mothers in the when I walk through the village. Um, but uh, and so Jonathan Carl actually gave voice to this thing that I've been thinking about for a while. I think, as I wrote a couple weeks ago, the best case scenario for Donald Trump in his own mind is that he actually overturns the election. I think he wants to overturn the election. I think that he is trying to, you know, he's famous for keeping his options open. He doesn't necessarily think it's going to work, but he thinks there's a non-trivial chance that it could. And so he doesn't want to close that door. Um, A colorable chance. (laughs) A colorable chance. That's right. So then there's... And then There's there are not. other options he wants. I know I understand that, but but we're talking about persuading him, not, yes, not normal yes. human beings. And and then he has other options he wants to keep open, a media thing or whatever. There's also just he wants to be able to walk through the lobby of Mar-a-Lago without being embarrassed that he lost to, to Joe Biden. I think that's another one. I th- I increasingly think I've been thinking this for a couple of weeks now that one of them is he just wants to knock down Joe Biden's electoral college number from 306. And it goes to sort of part of his psychology where he just needs talking points. He's one of these people who needs to have stuff to brag about. And being able to say, I beat him in the electoral college is something he wants to be able to say. And it matters to him. So even if it's just total BS, getting Georgia or somebody to throw out their electors is a win for him because it means he beat him, um, you know, had a better score in the electoral college. Do you think that's a fair suspicion? Is that a colorable? theory. So first of all, I'm sure there's a German word for when someone says something you wish you'd said, but, yes. but when John Carl talks, I, I get so annoyed because it's, it's more like I'm upset, not because he said something that I wish I'd said, but because he thought something that I wish I'd even thought. And like, of course, yes, but, and Jonah, I'm so glad you brought this up because I get to go back to talking about the Supreme court. Sorry, listeners. This actually would have been somewhat plausible uh, a year ago that one or more of the electors would have peeled off Biden or, you know, yeah, Biden, I guess, and said that they were voting for Trump or just said that they weren't voting for Biden. This happened in 2016, where actually quite a few of the Hillary electors peeled off and um, tried to vote for not Hillary, like a third party like McMullen mm-hmm. or whoever else. That went to the Supreme Court in this case about faithless electors, about, you know, in Oregon and Colorado, sorry, Washington and Colorado, they had laws that said that you, as an elector, it's not in your discretion to choose who to vote for once you've been picked. It is a ministerial function to simply vote like you're you're a human chess piece at that point. Like you're right. not making your own decisions. You are a Hillary elector. You are the human Hillary elector. You're not the human who gets to choose who to vote for. So in Washington, if you violate that 
uh, and I may flip these, but in Washington, you get fined and in Colorado, you just get removed and your alternate gets put in. Mm. And uh, so there was this big argument at the Supreme Court of whether in fact, this is a discretionary function or a ministerial function. And the Supreme Court decided that uh, yes, states can punish faithless electors by whatever way they want. So if they want to remove them and put in an actual Hillary voter, they can do that like they did in Colorado. If they want to count your vote the way that you chose to vote, but then fine you $1,000, they can do that like they did in Washington. So you're not going to have any faithless electors this time around. So Donald Trump's avenues for uh, chipping away at that 306 number that Biden has, which is the number that he had in uh, 2016, um, dim and dimmer. Um, I just completely lost my train of thought. I was so transfixed in, <laughs> in your answer there. Um, Faithless electors was one of my favorite cases all of last term. There were cases that got a lot more attention than faithless electors, like the transgender gender discrimination case. There was an abortion case. It was the DACA case. It was the Trump finance case. But in my heart, Jonah, I was always a faithless electors girl. I I actually have some sympathy for the idea of allowing faithless electors. That me you too. Know, yeah, me I mean, too. I'm a broken record on this role of like people being loyal to their institutions and doing what is best as an institution and blah, 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 blah. And um, let's forget Donald Trump for a second. Let's just say for the sake of argument that you got to the equivalent point where you're about to vote, cast your vote and you found out that the president of the United States was in fact the Manchurian candidate. He had small children in the trunk of his car. I mean, something found out something truly, truly horrible. The idea that you just are compelled as like an automaton to vote for Donald Trump, uh, or not Donald Trump, for the that, the Manchurian candidate guy, I, I think is kind of wrong, but I can see the other side. Um, but then this is important. What the Supreme Court actually said was that um, you can require faithful electors, not that you must require faithful electors. So it was actually just whether a state could choose, you know, their path for their electors. That's right. And so the Supreme yeah. Court basically said that is within the state's discretion to decide whether they want to allow Manchurian candidates or not. Um, but I'm with you. If I were voting in my state, I would vote to allow faithless electors. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I like that wiggle room. Um, I think it's kind of important. And, you know, one of the but places it's why where... you and I don't early vote. It's the same logic, really. Like we, we like to see you know, in the last possible moment, is there anything that we need to learn before election day? That's exactly right. And, and, and that kind of wiggle room also comes in really in hand when you're talking about ordering large amounts of meat through uh, the internet. And that's why I want to talk about United Harvest. Let's talk about meat. Did you know that the best stuff isn't available at the grocery store? But if you order your meat online, you should know that some of those boxes import their meat from overseas. Well, I've been getting meat from United Harvest, which is a new delivery company founded by ranchers. They exclusively provide the best cuts of American beef, Wagyu, and lamb. I know exactly what I'm getting and exactly where it's from, and, and you really can taste the difference. Seriously. United Harvest works directly with North American family farms that uphold the highest standards of quality and animal care. Instead of an industrial factory, all of United Harvest's meat is processed in Oregon by an expert butcher. 
the end result is superior to what you get from the big supply chains and sold directly to you at a surprisingly good price. We're talking premium cuts like ribeye steak, which is well-marbled and mouth-watering, New York strip, which is potato-fed, not corn, resulting in a richer and fuller flavor, Wagyu top sirloin steak, which is a versatile cut that's lean yet flavorful, lamb loin chops that are perfect for a holiday party. They're tender, packed with flavor, and quick to cook. The flavor's out of this world because premium quality is built into every step of United Harvest's sustainable farming process, which includes no hormones, GMOs, or unnecessary antibiotics. Since United Harvest farmers are right here in the USA, there's no imported meat from halfway around the world like some meat delivery companies do. Just premium cuts of perfect meat delivered overnight. So as I told you, we got a big shipment from United Harvest. It's great. Uh, We're working our way through it. We haven't done the lamb chops yet. I think those are next. They look really good. My wife is super particular about lamb chops. She will not eat lamb chops from Australia or New Zealand. Um, uh, And this is not because we are uh, aiding and abetting the Chinese and their pressure on Australia. We've started buying Australian wine to help them with the embargo. It's just that she finds, and I agree with her, that Australian lamb, it just has that gamey taste to it that we don't like. And and I'm really looking forward to United Harvest's lamb chops because they come from the United States. So speaking of Australia, here's what I want you to do. Go to unitedharvest.com. That's unitedharvest.com and enter a promo code DINGO to get 20% off site-wide with your order of $50 or more. That's unitedharvest.com, promo code DINGO at checkout. If you value quality, flavor, convenience, check out unitedharvest.com and be sure to use that promo code DINGO, D-I-N-G-O. We thank United Harvest for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant and for sending me meat products because I enjoy them. Jonah, Jonah, yes. that was such a great read. Do they pay you extra for the segue, though? Um, I don't get paid for extra for the segue. And, and it's funny. Some people get very mad about the segues. And some people really enjoy the segues. But my understanding, and Caleb, will cor- our, our super producer, will correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the segues are going to be going away at some point as we do these, these auto-feed ad things that come in. And I know I'm going to get grief from people about it, but I, I, That's heartbreaking. I, I enjoy the segues. It is. It's, it's truly heartbreaking. Um, okay, so have you been watching The Queen's Gambit? I already finished it. Okay. In fact, I saw that you said that you had some beef with it, and I am very here for your beef. Because, first of all, it being overrated is different than having beef. I don't really Uh care why you think it's overrated. That is a a matter of your your taste, which we can discuss as being poor or good. I mean, you're not David French, so it's better than zero. But Yeah, it's a low bar. I have, uh, I'm very here for why why you have specific beef. Because I have some beef. Okay, so... First of all, uh, speaking of beef, I am really cross that you couldn't have said, I'm here to hear the beef 10 minutes earlier so I could have gotten know, that United Harvest ad in. I mean, my God, <laughs> I had to use wiggle room for faceless electors to get it in. Okay, so I thought it started really strong. I lo- like, and stipulated, I liked it, right? I liked it. I enjoyed watching it. I, when I finished one episode, I wanted to watch another. Um, 
One of the things I really, and there are going to be some spoilers maybe here for folks. So, you know, you can do what you got to do. It's not a thriller. You you don't need to, you can have the whole thing. That's spoiled. right. It's, some of it's, it's kind also, of atmos- more atmospheric than. It's also based um, on a book from 1983. So it's been around a while. Is that right? I didn't even know that. Um, so, so I liked it. I enjoyed it. The, the, the main character is very easy on the eyes and is, and she portrays and she does it well and all that kind of stuff. Um, one of the, the thing I liked most about it was I am very, I just, I, I know you're going to find this shocking and I don't typically brag here, but I am very good about predicting where shows are going during the show. I've watched an enormous amount of TV in my life. I can walk into some sitcom that my daughter is watching and saying, okay, he's going to end up working as that guy's plumber, you know, and, and be right. I mean, I, I, I know the formulas. They come to me naturally. Uh, there's a German word for having a, at the tip, tip of your fingertips touch for the battlefield. And I have that when it comes to a lot of TV and movies, I can predict things. And I kept predicting things wrong in this. And I like that. Oh, I was like, and that bothered you? Yeah. Okay, no, no, good. that's the thing I really liked about it. Okay. That said, um, uh, I think it just kind of came apart in, in, they didn't know how to end it. Um, I think the getting out of the car on the way to the airport to play with old men thing is a weird, oh, I, she's married Tyler Moore in Moscow now. That's wonderful. (laughs) Um, and I think that the, uh, um, the implausibility of the idea you know like very late that it occurred to the writers that maybe the the in the midst of the cold war that that the state department would be into seeing her succeed um i thought that stuff was like really really implausible um i also just think that like i've i've known some alcoholics and drug addicts in my life um and addiction is a real thing and i'm not trying to belittle it but um in my experience, the people who do that ma- that much day drinking, never mind quaaludes or whatever else she was taking, tend not to have perfect hair 24-7. The hair um, was really something. The, the hair was on point, right? And um, uh, and so I just, I feel like it kind of meandered in the second half. I mean, I don't want to give away a whole bunch of spoilers quite yet, but, um, and it became more sort of atmospheric and moody um, then really about, certainly about the chess, um, and, and just otherworldly in the way it, how it treated this super hot 20 something chess prodigy who became a world champion amidst the cold war fighting the Soviets. They made it seem like, oh, this is just an interesting small angle cold war politics when it would have dominated everything. Also just nine-year-old girls taking fistfuls of tranquilizers and being okay is also a bit of an issue for me. So uh, thoughts, responses? I find it uh, interesting and 100% predictable what our beefs are because they uh-huh. actually are just these perfect mirrors of our personalities and that they're totally different from one another. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Which is why I am like Jonah Goldberg's biggest fan. And it's so fun to work with him uh, all the time. And you every sit day. on the throne of lies, but thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> okay. So here are my beefs. 
And it, this is why I brought up that it was a book from 1983, because that's very relevant to the sort of cultural zeitgeist of why that book was made into a movie now and uh-huh. what it says about uh, how we absorb that type of story now versus how it might have been absorbed in 1983. So, as you will not be surprised to hear, all of mine has to do with gender. <laughs> I'm, I'm floored. So, so, this idea that you have this woman who is a chess prodigy who is accepted nearly immediately, cheered on by all these men, there's no actual real bad guys in the whole show. That, by the way, mm-hmm. I really liked. It was a little like Ted Lasso in that way, where no one's a bad guy. There are obstacles for your characters to overcome, but they're not humans with bad motivations. Mm-hmm. Uh, even the Russian uh, are not portrayed as being her enemy. They hug her at the end. Um, you know, they're, they're good guys who recognize her talent. I think in 1983, a story like that would have sort of been seen as like a fantastical, fun unicorn. Ha ha, what if we had a super smart woman like that? <laughs> That's hilarious. Let's see what would happen. Sort of like this alternative history if, you know, Hitler had turned out to be an artist or whatever type idea. But in 2020... Or to settle everybody's differences through breakdancing. That would have been cool too. <laughs> but in 2020, people are watching this and just saying like, yeah, of course she could play chess that well. Well, that's not actually true either. You know, <laughs> when uh, women are segregated in chess and part of that, uh, and by the way, I had a wonderful listener write in about this that uh, was a great chess player. And he said, first of all, the Soviets actually were the bad guys. Like, the, <laughs> so this idea that they're not portrayed as the bad guys would have also in 1983 been seen as a really uh, like radical notion, in fact. Right. And the huge and a, crowds of fans just being allowed to hang out on the street to get the yeah. American running dog capitalists autograph. I mean, there's like a lot of that stuff. A, it was weird. A political statement in the book yeah. that we don't see it as a political statement now. And that uh, the Soviets are the ones who segregated women from chess. So that like there's women chess tournaments and there's men's chess tournaments. And the um, I believe that the current highest ranked woman is ranked 63. Mm-hmm, in the mm-hmm. as, uh, you know in the world so there's 62 men or so that are better than her um there just have not been women of that level ever and so it's like a that's part of the fiction that's part of the storytelling is right. what it would have been like to have a woman who could do that but because of me too in 2020 and gender politics and dynamics, instead, no one's really talking about that aspect of it. Instead, they're just really taking it at face value. But no, no, I say nay. <laughs> um, so I want more of the conversation around how that is in its original language, which is the language of 1983 America in the heart of the Cold War and in the heart of women really just starting to leave the home for like non-secretarial teacher nurse type roles. And you get these movies like Fatal Attraction, for instance, where like a, you know, career woman who dresses like a man is coming in to like, you know, kill men literally in the movie and metaphorically and metaphorically in the eighties. So also um, working girls around that time too, right? (laughs) Yeah. 85, you know, something like that. So that's, that's the culture in which this story was meant to be told. 
And I loved the clothes. I loved her hair. I liked the story. I thought it was like neat to live in a world where there's no gender discrimination. Um, and she can just be a raging bee to all these men. And they're like, but we're still rooting for you. And we're still your friend. And she's like, <laughs> I hate you. And they're like, but we love you. And there's no sex um, really plot going on. They're just yeah. there cheering for her as buddies. Uh, that's all really cool. And the idea that a 16-year-old girl wouldn't have been taken advantage of by all of these 20, 30, and 40-year-old men is also flipping hilarious. Yeah, and also the... I mean, you, you, I hadn't thought about it that, but there's also no racism, right? That's something that kept... Like, that was early on one of the things that like I kept waiting. Oh, they're setting us up. She's in an orphanage with a lot of these black you know, orphans, and we're going to see racism. Didn't see it. Didn't see... Uh, like the scene when they're driving back early on, uh, she just gets adopted and the dad is giving her crazy, creepy looks. I'm like, yes. oh, he's he's totally going to abuse her. He didn't, you know, I mean, like there's <laughs> a lot of like red herring kind of things or false, you know, false signals that I, that part I liked, but I didn't realize the 1983 thing. And that explains what I thought was also a particularly egregious, although probably not for the average viewer, weird anachronism is that the Benny character said, Oh, you know, you really need to get more publicity. You should go on the tonight show or like Phil Donahue. And this is 1967. <laughs> Phil Donahue was an obscure <laughs> Ohio local talk show host. The idea that you would put Phil Donahue in the same sentence as the tonight show with Johnny Carson is cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. But if you're doing this for 1983, he is a stand in for major, like he's like Oprah. At that yeah. point, right? And yeah. before Oprah was Oprah. Um, so I thought that was interesting. I agree with you about the gendered stuff. It is, it is, it is interesting. Like the the I, I kind of now that I'm thinking about it, there was this really dumb quote from some famous philosopher or intellectual at the beginning of the final chess match. And I, I was it Sartre or something like that. And the quote from like a, the chess announcer, which is I mean, like. Can you imagine the chicks chess announcers get? Um, uh, no, and says, neither can they. Exactly. Um, says something along the lines of chess is like a state of nature where all the rules of nature are reduced to the chessboard. And I just laughed when I heard them say this. And I didn't, I'm assuming it's a real quote from some famous intellectual who I'm just forgetting now. That's one of the most preposterous things I've ever heard. Like, like in a state of nature, if you're being chased by a guy on horseback who wants to kill you, you run away. You don't stand there as like, well, it's not my turn. I have to stay here as this guy comes at me with a sword, you know. Um, and, and I can't and, move diagonally. Yeah. And so it, it occurs to me, like, when you're talking about all of this, is that I, maybe there's some deep meta-ironic thing to it because all of the characters don't actually behave like human beings. They play behave like set pieces, as it were. In the in the the producer's sort of mental chess game, and so their motivations are constrained by you know almost in an allegorical sense by what they're supposed to represent, rather than actually behave like human beings and like really hit on the really cute drunk redhead girl, which a lot of these boys just wouldn't do because that would be wrong, and that's a it's a nice world to live in. <laughs> yeah. So I and you know there's other pieces of literature like this where. Um, the point was that they were radical 
But if you mm-hmm. read them 100 years later, it's not radical anymore. Yeah. And yeah, this yeah. is just like, it was meant to be radical. The gender politics were meant to be radical. The Soviet era politics were meant to be radical. And instead, everyone today is like, this is a great thing about chess. And chess boards, by the way, are flying off the shelves. Yes, it helps that it's a pandemic. Uh, even my husband, who, you know, was a like on and off again chess player. I can't get him to stop. Like I've lost him to chess now because I made him watch what would probably have been considered a chick flick on Netflix or whatever. Um, and now, now he's gone and now he just plays chess all the time. So that's great. I'm all for it. Cool thing. But you know, like so many things about chess, there's a musical called chess that Jonah fun fact. I was the lead in that musical in high school. Um, in the cold war chess was this stand in metaphor for obvious reasons but you lose the metaphor in the queen's gambit and that's my beef instead everyone's just taking it as a cool chess thing yeah no <laughs> I, chess I agree with is that. the metaphor <laughs> um and i think that generations from now after you've achieved the full majesty of your story arc um people will go back and listen to this podcast and realize it was it was supposed to be radical but it now just seems totally normal. Uh, Sarah, thank you very much for doing this. I will see you in a little while. And then we got the Dispatch podcast tomorrow. And uh, people should really listen to advisory opinions if they're not doing that. If they actually want to have law stuff explained, just don't take David French's pop culture takes too seriously. Um, And uh, thank you so much for doing this. See you soon. Okay, so... Sarah, I mean, we, I can't say left the building anymore because everyone stays in their homes. But uh, Sarah has left the studio, and uh, I'm delighted that we had her um, back on because she was just too reserved the first time that she was on, and uh, and and now you get to listen to her and all her glory and splendor, and um, uh, and you should tune in to us where she is the uh, moderator, the, the the captain of the ship of our weekly flagship podcast, the Dispatch Podcast, where David, Steve, uh, Sarah, and I hold forth on, on all sorts of pressing issues of the day and of the week. And you can also listen to them on the Advisory Opinions Podcast, which isn't all about legal stuff, but it's, it's kind of front-loaded with the legal stuff because that's what it was designed to be. And they're both Harvard-trained lawyer-type people who can't see the reflections in the mirror because they passed the bar. Um, and uh, other than that, thanks for listening, and I will see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Sure.